In the future, roving bands of comic book podcasts will savage the wasteland, once known as the internet. One podcast, the Grawlix podcast, may not be the biggest, may not be the funniest, may not be the most well-spoken. Wait, what was my point again? Oh yes, the Grawlix podcast. Listen to it at GrawlixPodcast.com. That's G-R-A-W-L-I-X podcast.com. Hi, this is John Dugan, Grandpa from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you're listening to Moose's Monster Mash. Keep mashing. Welcome, Horror Hounds, to our very special anniversary episode of Moose's Monster Mash. I'm your host, Moose. You know, we've had a lot of fun over this last year. We've had some great guests, you know, like Sarah Karloff, Bela Jr., and Lynn Lagosi, John Dugan, just to name a few. Some of the guests have been kind enough to send their well wishes for a successful year. We've also talked about many great movies and topics. And more importantly, we've connected with you, the audience. Hey everyone, this is Wyatt Weed, the boar predator from Predator 2. And I just want to wish a happy one year anniversary to Moose's Monster Mash. Mash on. This is Jim Crutt, and I want to wish Moose's Monster Mash a happy first year anniversary. Keep mashing on. Thank you, Jim and Wyatt. Great to hear from you again. It was a blast hanging out with both of you guys and talking about your careers and different horror things. And Listeners, if you missed either of those episodes, you can listen to those and all my older episodes over at electronicmediacollective.com. And, you know, while you're there, check out other great podcasters like the great Lane Shaw from the Dr. Squeeze Show, who, without him, this episode wouldn't even be possible. This is Randy. And this is Melanie. From the Grolix Podcast. And we wanted to say uh, congratulations on a year of, really, a year of podcasting. Congratulations, Moose. You made it. Congratulations to a year of uh, Moose's Monster Mash and Bull Spit. I know they're two separate shows, but I mean, it's all it's all a year of podcasting. It's a year of Paul. It's the year of Paul. <laughs> He's talked to all kinds of interesting people, including me. You haven't been on his show before, though. You're right. I haven't. You should be on Moose's Monster Mash. It's horror movie stuff. I love horror movie stuff. You do? Yeah. Life goals! <laughs> <laughs> Here's to another year, a year and some change. <laughs> ten years. Here's to ten years. <laughs> uh, All right. Bye. Bye. Patreon. No, we didn't pimp our Patreon is on a special message. <laughs> Always with the self-promotion. And don't worry, Melanie. I have an episode in mind for you. I just have to find the right time to do it. Thank you guys for your well wishes, even though Jesse missed out on the recording. I want to thank the guys over at Grawlick, Jesse, Melanie, and Randy, for giving me my start behind the mic and allowing me to appear on their show. Listeners, head over to GrawlixPodcast.com and check out all of their pop culture episodes. That's G-R-A-W-L-I-X Podcast.com. Yes, I hear it in my sleep. Or join them Thursday nights on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch at 8 p.m. Central, for their weekly live shows, Grolix Nights. Cue the sax. Hello, Monster Mashers. Billy Peck here, your very first guest 
from Moose's Monster Mash where we discussed the very first Halloween, the second Halloween, the remake Halloween, the sequel to Halloween. Then, did we talk about the 2018 Halloween? If it sounds a little confusing, well that's because the Halloween series is confusing. And you can go back to that very, very first episode and listen to how the Halloween series became kind of confusing. But, make sure that you are celebrating Paul, Moose, Bull Moose, Apostle Paul, Hootamoose, Udamoose. Some of that stuff may not make sense. But if you go and you listen to previous episodes or the spin-off show, Bull Spit with Moose, you'll, you'll know. Anyway, I'm just, I'm having fun. I want to celebrate one year worth of podcasting for my good friend, Paul. Moose. I'm not going to go with that joke again. The podcast has uh, definitely brought us closer together as friends and uh, working partners. And I just want to say thank you for letting me help you. And listeners, enjoy Moose's Monster Mash one year anniversary. Who the moose? I the moose. That's right. First guest and behind the scenes driving force. You know, I'd actually be hard pressed to do this show without your help and friendship. Listeners, I I gotta say, Billy couldn't be a better friend. And I second every sentiment he made in his statements. We really have grown closer over this last year, and it has helped produce a greater quality content and a binding friendship. I mean, we, we chat just about every day, and you know, we, we joke about our kids who you would have heard at the end of his clip with the little ha That's probably the funnest part of his thing. So, Billy, thank you for helping me this last year and for being an amazing friend. And Logan, thank you for making me laugh. Speaking of quality content and binding friendships, head over to Eddie and the Star Cruisers on Facebook. We're a collective of independent creators with the perfect gifts for the holidays. We have movies, music, comics, art, podcasts, wrestling, and crafts. This holiday season, head to Eddie and the Star Cruisers on Facebook, where the perfect gift can be found for just about anybody. You guys are probably getting tired of me droning on and on, so I think I'll wrap it up. We have a very special show. We're joined by the great-grandnephew of Brom Stoker, Mr. Dacre Stoker. And as part of this special episode, we have a giveaway at the end of the episode. Now, I have to let you know, there won't be a new Moose's Monster Mash in November, but don't fret. It's because we are setting up for our 13 horrifying days of Christmas in December. So we will be back on December 12th to set up for our season two premiere, so stay tuned. And once again, thank you for listening and supporting the show. And I want to thank all the listeners and all the guests that have been a part of this marvelous journey. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for a great first year, and here's to many more to come. And now, without any further ado, and no more cheap shills, let's get on with the show. Here's Mr. Daker Stoker.
original preface of Dracula. The reader of the story will very soon understand how the events outlined in these pages have been gradually drawn together to make a logical whole. Apart from excising minor details which I considered unnecessary, I have let the people involved relate their experiences in their own way, but for obvious reasons I have changed the names of the people and places concerned. In all other respects I have left the manuscript unaltered, in deference to the wishes of those who have considered it to their duty to present it before the eyes of the public. I am quite convinced that there is no doubt whatever that the events here described really took place, however unbelievable and incomprehensible they might appear at first sight, and I am further convinced that they must always remain to some extent incomprehensible. Although continuing research in psychology and natural sciences may, in years to come, give logical explanations of such strange happenings which at present neither scientists nor the secret police can understand. I state again that this mysterious tragedy, which is here described, is completely true in all its external respects, though naturally I have reached a different conclusion on certain points than those involved in the story. But the events are incontrovertible, and so many people know of them they cannot be denied. This series of crimes has not yet passed from the memory. A series of crimes which appear to have originated from the same source and which at the same time created as much repugnancy in people everywhere as the murders of Jack the Ripper, which came into the story a little later. Various people's minds will go back to the remarkable group of foreigners who for many seasons together played a dazzling part in the life of the aristocracy here in London, and some will remember that one of them disappeared suddenly without apparent reason, leaving no trace. All the people who have willingly or unwillingly played a part in this remarkable story are known generally and are well respected. Both Jonathan Harker and his wife, who is a woman of character, and Dr. Seward are my friends and have been so for many years, and I have never doubted they were telling the truth. And the highly respected scientist who appears here under a pseudonym, who also be too famous all over the educated world for his real name, which I have not desired to specify, to be hidden from people. Least of all those who have from experience learnt to value and respect his genius and accomplishments, though they adhere to his views on life no more than I. But in our times it ought to be clear to all serious thinking men that there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. London, Bram Stoker. That's right, folks. The voice you just heard is the great-grandnephew of the legendary author Bram Stoker. I'm Moose, and I'm sitting down with uh, Dacre Stoker. Dacre, how are we doing? Well, I tell you, every time I read that, I do get little shivers. Um, I did, so too. I'm doing it was fine, crazy. But it, it, just, it makes me just really, really kind of shudder when I think of Bram, my great-granduncle, writing that to convince people that his story was real and 123 years later we're still trying to figure out what he's telling us and how much is fact and how much is fiction i, I love it it just keeps the story just keeps getting better the deeper we look into it yeah that's that, that always seems to be the point of contention was did he or didn't he believe that vampires are real i mean you read the book it sure seems like he did well he you know i, th I think that was his um one of his goals 
was to, to make, first of all, he wrote it in the epistolary style and he dated the book to happen in 1893. The book actually came out in 1897, so it was sort of, you know, real time. It happened a few years earlier. So the immediate response in London, where it first came out and then it slowly spread around the world, was holy smokes, there's real people, real places references to newspapers, journals that are real, shipwreck that was real. Maybe this is real. You know, maybe this after all is what we're understanding about the vampire that was quite popular in Eastern Europe and as Bram did in his research in, in many countries. Maybe it is slowly creeping into our center of the universe, which was London, the sort of the, the center of the world. And we're not so darn safe after all, if this thing can, can come in. And, and it was written, uh, you know, on the heels of the Jack the Ripper murders, which was mentioned in this preface, where the police couldn't stop the Ripper. And now you've got this band of heroes made up of a conglomerate of people within society. They're the ones that have a, a shot anyway at trying to save the you know, London by being taken over from this mysterious count from a land beyond the forest. So it's essentially a story of uh, elite vigilantism. Yeah, in, in a way, putting their, you know, putting all of their skill set together, Bram sort of looked at a cross-section. You know, it, it wasn't just the elites, because you've got Jonathan Harker and Mina, who are sort of working people, but you definitely have Homewood and Lucy um, and then Quincy Morris, who is sort of an elite American, even though he's a bit of a cowboy, you know, come over. And then you throw in, you know, the really interesting character of, of Van Helsing, who is not only a professor, but a doctor and a lawyer. And he's also a guy that embraces the whole concept of superstition that needs to be adhered to. So he's a he's a scientist who is adhering to the sort of the, the, the new science, the new sciences that are involved in the end of the uh, 1800s. But he's also saying, hey, we can use all the science stuff, but we also have to believe that folklore and, and mythology and superstition is important. You know, that, that you can't just turn a blind eye to, to, to everything other and believe only in science. And as I've dug into this, um, you know, in Bram's own world, he's got three brothers, my great-grandfather being one of them, who became very, very successful doctors. And there were other doctors in the Stoker family, you know, before those three. Bram was one of seven kids, but his, his father had some brothers that had children that became very successful doctors. So there was a heavily influence of science in the family. And yet Bram was sort of the literary guy that, that the guy that liked to live in the fantasy world, in the theatrical world, and obviously in the writing world, that would, you know, almost counter and let's say balance the Stoker family. Um, two, his two sisters were quite well-known artists, so there was sort of the artist in the family versus the scientist, and really that came out quite clear in the novel as well. Is is these new emerging sciences, the phrenology, the mesmerisms, obviously the blood transfusions, all these things you know, kind of got slid into Dracula, which were, you know, fairly common points uh, of argument, points of interest, not only in the Stoker family, but also in the in the society uh, at the time. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that 
he, he wrote it in like real time. Uh, essentially, what, what is now renowned as like one of the greatest novels to ever be written can also be considered probably one of the greatest tabloids. I mean, you, you, it took the real life events and spun them. Yeah. So he's also one of the greatest tabloid writers, you know, ever in existence. It's just strange to think about it. Yeah, it no, it is to, to think of, first of all, how it was first accepted and then how it took on a life of its own. And, you know, it's it, it's strange, but not so strange when you take the time to look at it. A, a good friend of mine, Professor John Edgar Browning, uh, wrote a book. Uh, a couple of them, actually, The Forgotten Writings of, of, of Bram Stoker and Bram Stoker a Critical Feast, where he actually found many, many reviews of Dracula, many more than scholars originally found, and that's really due to the age of digitization in libraries and different archives. And, and then up until maybe 15 years ago, the standard line with scholars was that Dracula was met with mixed reviews. And they were right at the time, as, as Browning points out. That of the ten reviews that were the basis for that statement, there was a, about one negative review and, and two somewhat 50-50 reviews, and the rest were, were really good. And technically, they're right. That's mixed. But when John found a hundred reviews all over the world, there was still a very small percentage which were negative, and the negative ones were really, this is too horrific for you know, a London audience. This was very scary. This was real time, in your face, in your backyard, um, horrific. You know, th this this had a you know pretty good impact. And then once it got turned into and adapted uh, to stage plays, it actually morphed a certain to a certain amount where where the main uh, actor, the character of Dracula became a very physically attractive um, uh, leading role be because what was normal in those days was, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the good looking guy or gal on stage, Henry Irving and, and uh, Ellen Terry, um, perfect examples. So when Dracula got adapted to the stage, you had Raymond Huntley, you had. Um, you know, Bela Lugosi, obviously, and, and, and many others down the, down the road, um, Frank Langella, and many, many, many others. And, and that sort of changed the novel a little bit, but they also had to cut and paste all kinds of things. You couldn't have as many of the set changes um, as you and I chatted about just, just earlier. It was written in real time, and it popped back and forth a lot between Whitby and London and Amsterdam and Transylvania. You couldn't do that on stage. You would drive the, the set designers and the people changing the sets crazy, and it would be very confusing to the audience. So they had to merge a lot of things, and that that was okay because it, it you know it became accepted. Um, but what what happened was the stage plays spurned more sales of the novel worldwide, and then of course Nosferatu and all the movies we can chat about another time. But um, it, it really was a, a book that took the world by storm and never out of print, you know, over, you know, a thousand different different uh, versions or covers, different years, um, different countries, I think 30 languages. 
So it's a it's a book that hasn't been looking back. No, it's a, it it hit the ground running and it really lends itself to the imagination. I mean the you know the the scenery that is presented and you know like you mentioned when it goes to the stage you know it generally when you see it on stage it all takes place with the uh castle backdrop um and even then it's still a remarkable story that everything takes place in the castle it doesn't really take anything away from the story but it still get, you know it still puts this grandiose larger than life character in front of you and that's the dracula that everybody knows today well paul one of the interesting things about about dracula that the count himself in the novel and on on the stage plays is he he only appears you know in person in about 30% of the novel and on stage he exists in the imagination uh, in the concerns and the worries, in the journals and so on of the characters, and to me that even makes him more scary because you can't identify when and where the enemy is. I mean, if we if we looked at the monster in Frankenstein, there's no getting around where, who who that guy is and when he appears, the big footsteps and bash it through the door sort of thing, but Dracula. You're not sure if he's a if he will appear as a bat, as the mist, as a wolf, as 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 rats. He he can slide under the door. Now, of course, he does have to be invited in, um, but but he's he, he's he's difficult to identify with, and therefore that really keeps the characters, even though they don't see him all the time, their worry is always there, and that's something Bram I think did very very effectively. To, to create this concern of the unseen enemy. And it's a little bit like, I think, how he read the situation of Jack the Ripper, who he mentioned in that preface that I read, I read earlier. Jack the Ripper was sort of his presence in London, and he was obviously doing his knifing act uh, in a horrific manner. But he, he, was, he was unstoppable, and he was just sort of in the mist, in the fog, in the shadows, and ne- nobody ever knew when he would appear, and nobody knew how to catch him. And that's the same feeling that he successfully portrayed with his count. Oh, yeah, I agree. And he also, with the way he wrote Dracula, he, he tapped into everyone's base fear. That fear of the dark, fear of the unknown, where you're right, you, he could be anywhere. You know, You walk outside... You don't know if he's standing there lurking and watching you. You don't know if you, you never know when you're safe. And yeah, what's you know, and what made it interesting is it made essentially made Dracula an, in, an ancillary character in his own story. But he was always everybody's focus. But he, like you said, he wasn't the. You know, it's not like he's the star of the book. He's just, okay, we're, we're worried about him. It, you know, what, how's he going to get us? What's he going to do? The, and the other element of him was he represented this fear 
strangely, as even we do to this day, of immigrants coming to this country and what are they bringing? You know, in some cases, you hear people saying they're bringing the worst. Others saying we need these guys because of their ability to do jobs we can't do. Back in the turn of the century, the uh, the people in London were definitely lashing out uh, against uh, what has been termed as reverse colonization. You know, the British go out and and they move into all these countries and they end up taking over. Um, and then slowly they start re- retreating and coming back. And, and they're not really all that keen on people flooding the market and coming back into their country and taking advantage of all the, the benefits without you know, you know, putting up that much. And I, I've read papers that people believe that this is what Count Dracula signified, is these Eastern Europeans that are unwanted in London's, you know, the high society, and they'd be kind of forced to the the outskirts, the dock workers, and all these, you know, undesirable but necessary jobs, um, and they, they that scared people. And the fact that the count came from a part of the world that they didn't know that much about. I mean, at that point, to put this in perspective, Paul, the sort of the civilized world ended at Budapest. And that that's very narrow minded, but that's you know it really didn't. But that's what people in London felt because there was not a lot of international travel. Obviously, you know, no internet and letters took a long time to get anywhere. And Bram was very lucky that there was at least four or five explorers, let's call them adventurers, maybe uh, Charles Bonner, Andrew Cross, Elizabeth Maturelli, um and Emily Gerard, who went and lived in these parts of the world or had adventures in these parts of the world and wrote books about them, had them published back in, in London, and they ended up into the London Library and other libraries where Bram Stoker had access to learn about this country, um, you know, as as Emily Gerard's book, The Land Beyond the Forest, use in the title. It was a far away, dark place with weird stuff that was happening. And that was a representative of the guy that was coming into, you know, our fancy world. And we're not ready for it. And so that's the other part that besides the unknown and and the really horrifying side of it, it is the, as they call it, the other that we don't want here. And that's what made Dracula even more Strange is it signified what was really happening in London at the time. So, based on the story you just told, then you and Brahm have a lot more in common than just the uh, bloodline, because it's as we've talked about leading up to this interview, you went on a quite the uh, journey uh, in libraries and such as he would have to do the research and everything to write Dracula. Now you're doing the research into him and the backstory of Dracula and digging into libraries and, uh, you know, family lore and ledgers and stuff like that. And so how, how was, uh, how'd that all come about? The, uh, the, the, the quest for Brahm as it were. <laughs> it, it, it is a quest. Uh, Paul, and it's really started 
when uh, Ian Holt and I embarked on writing Dracula the Undead back in 2009, I really didn't know that much about Bram and nobody in my family really did. We, we were um, uh, lucky that, that other scholars had written biographies and McNally and Florescu wrote In Search of Dracula, which was really the first book that I read uh, in, in a university library. And that, that, that sort of got the ball rolling. Um, of course, I was a teacher at the time and a, and a coach in the sport of modern pentathlon, so I couldn't devote full time to this. And, and even when I started, you know, in the you know, you know, early 2000s, everything, not, there wasn't a lot of digitization um, available to me, but it was getting better. Um, but I, I, I did start to travel um, in, in, I think, 2008 was the first trip to Ireland to actually look into Trinity College archives and Marsh's library and visit with some of my cousins to ask them personally about stories they may have to, they're willing to pass on so so I could learn a lot more about Uncle Bram to, to insert him into the book as a as a character. And 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 it was it was sort of like, you know, almost like an Indiana Jones situation where the more I learned, I'd uncover something that would lead me in two or three different directions. And it and it was nice in a way that um I was a family member and and welcomed with open arms with some of the biographers and and scholars at universities who said, oh, let, let, let me tell you what I know, or I'm working on this. Let me send you a manuscript, you know, sign a non-disclosure and I'll, I'll show this to you. That that sort of thing gave me tremendous insight and continued giving me clues and, and where to go and look look for certain things. And, and uh, you know, you publish a book. Dracula Dead came out in '09, and and some of the reviews were great, and some of the reviews were not great. Some people loved the idea that we kind of wrote in this sort of historic manner, although we didn't write in in the epistolary style, but it had really a real genuine old vibe to it because we did have a historic researcher that helped us find maps and subway routes and so on in, in, in London and houses that existed back then, but not now to help us write. Um, but, at, and, and you, you put yourself out there when you write one of these things, you, I accumulated a lot of contacts and a lot of information that did not get used. And one in particular, Paul was, was, uh, one of Bram's great grandsons, my cousins, uh, who's in his, you know, early 80s now, actually had a box of stuff in his attic on the Isle of Wight. And one of them was Bram's journal. And it was a, I mean, it was like finding the Holy Grail because one of the things that has been discovered was Bram's Dracula notes, but nobody has discovered something as personal as his own journal. And once that was, I, I had that published with Elizabeth Miller and she's a real authority on Dracula and Bram Stoker. And, and uh, then, again, more clues uh, found in the story about Bram himself, what kind of a person he was, what caught his attention, what his life was like, what, you know, what his writing, early, early writing was like. And then more, you know, more things I would, I would find uh, at different conferences I'd go to, and, and one of them you know, was the Dracula typescript. 
that was the one and only manuscript. And since it is typed, it is um, called the TypeScript. And the Paul Allen Foundation, one of the co-founders of Microsoft, makes it available to serious scholars to look at it, but you got to go to Seattle, Washington to do so. So when J.D. Barker and I were putting Dracul together, we went out and, and studied this this TypeScript. And, and I think, you know, just for the listeners today to sort of not ramble too, too far on this, you know, one of the really cool things we found was that and I knew some of these things in advance because, for instance, Les Klinger, who wrote a really brilliant annotated Dracula, had alluded to a number of these. But I, I wanted to see it in person, and I wanted to figure out, um, you know, what what else is potentially there. But the the the, mat, the TypeScript starts on page one hundred and two, which means one hundred and one pages were missing. And what we were writing was a prequel to Dracula. And we wanted to make sure that if we're going to write a prequel, we, we, we need to end the prequel where Bram Stoker decided to start the original Dracula. And so I wanted to know what clues in that TypeScript existed in, in Washington, Seattle, Washington. And so we found the things that Bram had crossed out in the TypeScript. Now remember, this is one of the last things that Bram Stoker has his hands on before he gives it to the publisher. And then in this case, the publisher used it, published the book, and gave it back to Bram. And 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 he ended up giving it to uh, a close friend and a lawyer for Walt Whitman when Whitman died. It was going to be a, a gift to Whitman in exchange for Whitman's notes on Abraham Lincoln that Bram used to write some some speeches. And this Mr. Donaldson left it in a farmhouse or in a barn, actually, in a trunk 40 or 50 years after his family were gone from this farm. It was discovered by new owners wrapped up in paper. And here was this, you know, 400 some odd pages of a, of a Dracula typescript, which then went to auctioning and sold for just under a million dollars. And that typescript told me. Because there was three specific passages that were crossed out that appeared in the short story Dracula's Guest that Bram's widow published two years after Bram died. And in the preface to that Dracula's Guest and other short stories, she said, this was excised from one of my husband's most famous works, Dracula, for, for its length which makes sense to, to me and JD is, is books in those days needed to be a certain length because paper was very expensive and people just weren't used to reading books of close to 500 pages. So we found that and it was like, yes, that makes sense. Now we know where to end our story exactly and in this village. So if any of your listeners are, are keen on, on what I've just said. You've got to go and, and get yourself a copy, and you can usually get them free on the internet on Project Gutenberg, or you can buy it in a short story collection. Dracula's Guest is definitely uh, the story of Jonathan Harker stopping from London in the train, and you have to usually make a number of stops on the way, Paris being one, but this was in Munich, before you take the next train the next day, on to Budapest and then on to Romania. Um, and this was his, let's just call them misadventures outside of Munich that involves a graveyard 
a vampire and a wolf. <laughs> so that's that's how we knew, okay, we, that's where we've got to end our story. We've got to end it in a village. There, there are all these cool little clues that going to these different um, libraries, different private collections, that I glean this really cool stuff and, and are able to use it in in these fictional novels. Because to me, the greatest... Uh, compliment, and, and that's one of the things J.D. and I've got a lot of, and, and so did Ian and I with Dracula the Undead. But in Dracul, so many people now are saying, I can't tell if this is a fact or fiction. I, I, I had no idea. And that, to me, tells me that we did something very close to what Bram Stoker did, kind of give people the illusion that this stuff is real, and you just love the story. By God, it's it's probably real. Yeah, it's funny, all these uh, talks about quests, that's kind of how this interview ended up happening. I had, uh, I think they're referred to as spider boards, but I call them the conspiracy theory boards. You know, you have the red strings strung out everywhere trying to pin down oh, yeah. all the uh, connections. You know, I've interviewed uh family of Bela Lugosi, interviewed the family of uh, Boris Karloff, and I got interested in, okay, where can, you know, where did their characters originate from? I mean, obviously, you know, Bela is Dracula, Boris is Frankenstein's monster, but, you know, I, I wanted to delve deeper into the uh, character origins. So I start tracking down, I was trying to find a lead to find somebody to talk to about Bram. And I'm hitting wall after wall, dead end after dead end. And it, it, it was it's starting to get frustrating, you know, because I'm just hitting all these dead ends. And then an interview you did with the Dr. Squeeze Show on the Electronic Media Collective website. Well, he's on the electronicmediacollective.com. Um, just kind of fell into my lap. We're on the same network. And I just happened to be listening to his show. I was like, what? What? I've been looking for somebody for months. And here's this interview just laying here. So... I, I, I do need to thank the guys over at Dr. Squee for, you know, essentially dropping you in my lap. Because otherwise <laughs> this wouldn't happen. I'd still be uh, chasing rabbits. <laughs> well, I, I, I will thank them. It was It's interesting. I, I have a large following in the UK. Obviously, uh, Dracul was the number one horror hardcover in 2018 when it came out. Uh, so we, we've we've got like a good following there, and and I get invited over to give a lot of my Stoker on Stoker talks, and there was this one very cool weekend called Science Fiction Weekend that's held in Great Yarmouth, and that's where I first met Squee, and he said, hey, we we've, we've got to do one of these these interviews, and the whole thing obviously like happened to everybody else and and yourself and, and, and me as well, Paul, this year's convention. I was supposed to go back to it was it was all postponed or rescheduled because of the COVID pa pandemic, and um, he said, "Well, can we just make up for it and let's do a you know one of these Zoom interviews?" And we actually figured out how to. Um, I sent him some of my slides from my Stoker on Stoker, which is some of these some of Bram's notes, some of the things that happened in his life, and certain. And, and we can get into this in a little bit when you ask for the origin of the character. I've got some very strong ideas um, about the origin of Count Dracula, and we can get that in a, in, in a minute. But, um, the, you know, some of the cool things 
is that you can reach a very large audience uh, with these Zoom platforms and different types of podcasts and so on. But as, as you so so uh, astutely point out, sometimes they're not the easy thing to find. They may fall in your lap or you, you may need to you know, click the right buttons to activate a search engine to do just the right thing. But nonetheless, it was a fun interview and uh, too bad I couldn't go over, but they've invited me to come back in, um, you know, in 2021. If, if the world re- returns to normal, we can all travel safely and, and, and you know, congregate in large groups to, and, and do signings and, and talks and all that sort of thing. If somebody hits the reboot button. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Please, please. The safe reboot button. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Let's, let's get into the uh, origins of Dracula. I mean, th- there's the obvious Vlad the Impaler buildup, but I mean, there has to be more to it than just Vlad. I mean, you know, Vlad can't be the only. I'm just trying to think, where do I start on this? Because you're, you're right. It, it, it is. It's it's fairly obvious that that Vlad, the historic um, prince of Wallachia, was near the starting point. But a lot of people don't know that that wasn't Bram's first choice. He he actually had, um, and we see this in his notes that sit in this uh, wonderful library and museum called the Rosenbach. The library museum in Philadelphia, and that's where his 124 pages of Dracula notes live. And they've got an interesting provenance. I won't get into that, but Bram's widow sold them, and they roundabout way ended up there. But when we see his original list of characters, and he lists down, you know, the the, the clerk, the lawyer, the this and that, the professor, he lists his count, but he calls him Wampir. W-A-N-P-Y-R-E. And then he crosses it out. And then he writes Dracula next to it. And then on the top left-hand side of the page and the top right-hand side of the page writes Dracula. And then he writes it again on the very top of the page, count Dracula, and underlines it it with, with, with bold ink as if he had just put his pen in the inkwell and freshly and like, this is my guy, and underlines it. And and that that doesn't have a date on it that page, but what a lot of the researchers and and, and I now have, have sort of believe in that theory as well is the London Library and the Whitby Library. Whitby is a coastal town in Yorkshire that Bram spent one holiday, two week period of time at. In their library, they had a book by William Wilkinson called "The Accounts of Principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia." And it had an, a, a portion in, the, in, in that book that Bram actually rewrote into his notes that said, Dracula in the Wallachian means devil or dragon and is, given, is a name given to somebody who displays cruel action or cunning. Now, we know that not to be exactly true, but Wilkinson information that he had at the time that's what he put in his book, and that's what Bram Stoker read. And up until recently, that was the only reference that anybody could find in his notes to the name to Dracula. And about two years ago, Philip Spedding, who is the head of fundraising at the London Library, who knew that Bram was 
a member of that library between 1890 and 1897 when he was writing Dracula, he found all the books that Bram listed in the back of his notes of his sources. And one of them was the same book that was in, in Whitby called The Account of Wallachia, Moldavia. But there was one other book called Transylvania Past and Present by James Samuelson. And in Bram's notes, he actually said once, he wrote, see Samuelson, page 149. So I had gone over to the London Library and with Robert 18 Bassang, who I'm doing an annotated Dracula with at the moment, and this was germane to our, our work, Philip invited us over to look and help verify that these books were, in fact, the ones Bram used. And in fact, Philip had discovered Bram wrote in the margins and made all kinds of cool little notes with pencil, which was a little naughty on Bram's behalf, but it helped actually verify that these were books used by Bram Stoker. In effect, they were ground zero for research for Dracula. And the book by Samuelson actually mentioned that Vlad, Vlad was known as the Impaler. He was known for his atrocities, but he was such a, a brutal and cruel ruler that he earned the nickname the Devil. So when you cross-reference what Bram got out of the Wilkinson book, Dracula known as the Dragon or the Devil, the Samuelson book he's known as the Devil, and then I start digging into other aspects of Bram and his research and his writing and his life, I realized that his good friend and boss, Henry Irving, made a big impression on Bram. The most successful play they did at the Lyceum over 27 years was Faust, where the role of Mephistopheles, the devil, was played by Irving. So now you've got a, a sort of a figure, a sort of a human bringing the devil to life in, in Irving, but you've got a real historical character um, being the devil. Um, and so that, to me, is what Bram was looking for. Now, now I back this up with other cool little things, Paul, and one of them is, and I'm sure it was tongue-in-cheek, but one of the addresses that Bram had the, the count send the 50 boxes of dirt that came off the Demeter, and they made their way to these three different addresses in London. One of the names in, in one of the houses was Count de Ville, <laughs> as in Count Devil. So he, he, he disguises it. And then one, one more quick little thing that backs it up. When I started reading all the other books in the London Library, a couple of them shows that volcanoes were known to be the portal down to hell, the home of the devil. And one of the books in particular pointed out that this section where Bram ended up putting his fictional castle Dracula up near the Borgo Pass was an area of obviously very old volcanic activity. And when we looked at the um, Dracula notes and cross-referenced this to the discovery of Hans de Roos, who realized that Bram's 
coordinates that he wrote in the Dracula's notes, once you invert them, they're unraveling a slight mystery itself. It points to this particular mountain. And when you look at the, 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 the end of the story of Dracula, where the good guys are chasing the count up into this northeastern corner of Transylvania, they all, it all ends up with the final action, the final battle um, at the base of Mount Israel, which was an old volcano, the home of the, the devil, the home of the count. And to final, finalize this whole mystery, again, putting all this stuff together like a puzzle, Bram's original ending to Dracula that J.D. and I verified with Paul Allen's typescript, the original ending right after Quincy Morris stabs the count in the heart and Jonathan slits his throat and the count crumbles into dust, a volcano erupted. So Bram being so detail-oriented and so um, precise in, in having everything just right, we now know where he placed his fictional castle, Dracula, at the at the base of this volcano, or, or the castle would have been up on the top of the volcano, but the action at the, near the end was at the base, because the the good guys stopped the gypsies from getting the the count up to the castle where he would have regained his power once the sun went down. So again, long winded, which I apologize for, but I believe Bram, being a religious man, was looking for a devil. That's the origin of his character. He wanted. A, a devil to, to be something living that we could identify with, and he needed a, a real person. And this, this Vlad the Impaler, um, Vlad Tepes from Wallachia, he switched him over to Transylvania. The dates were all right, uh, as, he, as he had Van Helsing sort of talk, talk to uh, us, the, the heroes, and also the Count explaining things to Harker. This is who he was, this real historic guy. In our previous conversations, there was one uh, phrase that stuck out at me that uh, really drove all this home. And as you mentioned, Bram was a uh, religious guy, as I'd imagine, you know, the whole family was at that time. And the uh, phrase that really drove all of this was the uh, resist the devil. Yes. Yeah, that I'm glad you brought that up because that's the one of Bram's Bible that his great grandsons have, and he was given it to him by his mom to inscribe on his 11th birthday. When I got a chance to look through that, I thought, "Oh, this is going to be gold. There's going to be all these things underlined, kind of like he did to the books in the London Library." But as you said, Paul, there was only one passage underlined and it's resist the devil just one but that was enough that showed us bram's leanings now i don't know if he went back and you know when he did the underlining if he underlined it 11 years old i tend to think maybe he was skimming through his bible looking for things and and he got there and go oh i got i gotta i gotta i gotta remember this because that's his kind of style, you know. They didn't have highlighters in those days, obviously, yeah. but they certainly could underline. I say it definitely fits with the uh, entire theme of the story, where it's, you know, everyone is, in fact, trying to, well, in essence, trying to resist the devil. Everyone's trying to avoid the inf influence of uh, the Count, 
and then eventually they take him out. Uh, so you get that good versus evil fight, and, and then obviously, you know, we have that resist the devil situation, and that that's why that just I mean, three words, just really yeah. stuck out. <laughs> so, so you're saying you can you can sum up all of Dracula in three words? Yeah, resist the <laughs> devil. <laughs> I, I agree. I think that's it. I want to give you one other quote that I think is very cool. That when I'm asked, "Hey, can you sum up the the novel?" Um, I use this one, and and let's see if if uh, obviously we we can't have call-ins, but see if your listeners right now can figure out where this was 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 uh, where it occurred. So I think this is very powerful, just like the one you just said. There are mysteries which men can only guess at, which age by age they may solve only in part. That is Bram talking about the concept of we need to be open-minded. We may not understand everything about the supernatural right now, but boy, someday we might. And we need to heed these concerns just because we can't solve it right now doesn't mean it is or it isn't, but we better be careful. Fast so, forward to 2020 be... and that's, yeah. you know, there's ghost hunter shows. There's, I mean, that's, yep. that, that is everyone's primary focus is the supernatural. <laughs> well, there is. And, you know, back in the, back in the day, you know, the whole concept of spiritualism, the, the spirit living on, this, this was a, a huge, um, you know, interest. There were seances. This was time of Houdini. Mark Twain, who was a, 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 a friend and a neighbor of Bram's in Chelsea for a couple of years. Uh, I'm sure the two of them conversed on this subject. Well, I'm, I'm sure they did because, because Bram actually inserted a quote from Mark Twain in Dracula. And it's, and it's all the similar concept. Mark Twain wrote in his book, Round the Equator, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. And Bram inserts into Dracula, I once heard of an American who so defined faith, that faculty which enables us to believe things we know to be untrue. So he actually slides Mark Twain right in there. That's the American he's talking Just about. Just a lot more eloquently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of the things you mentioned when you were talking about all the research you did, nobody has bothered these books in the London Library since he checked them out. I mean, how did these pencil notes survive? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's funny, I guess. Um, you think, you would think, something like the British Library, which is a private library, would have lots of people looking at things uh, and, and bring it to someone's attention. Like, my gosh, somebody has written in this book. Um, but the story of its discovery, you know, is really interesting, is that Philip Spedding picked up a copy of Robert 18 Besang and Elizabeth Miller's Dracula notes that live in the, in the Rosenbach and they're a facsimile publication. So you see exactly what Bram wrote, and then they explained um, how they, where they were used in, in the novel. And then at the back, they listed all of Bram's research books. He didn't say the London Library. 
But Philip Spedding knew he was a member there. And so he walked through the aisles, took him a couple of days with this book in hand and, and trying to pick off the shelves some of these books. And as he did, he accumulated, you know, one of those roller things full of like 28 books. And then he started looking through them and he saw that some of them had pages turned down, these little weird little notes. NB means note bene, um, other little squiggles and symbols. Now, he wasn't just as crass as just, you know, straight underlining stuff. And, and then what he did was he would look at one book in particular and he would see something that Bram made a note of and he'd go to the Dracula notes and, and, and figured out, did that appear somewhere in there? And, and when he started making these connections, that's when he realized he was on to a, a real deal and he got a hold of Robert and myself to come over and uh, see if we could help verify that. And he said, it's, it's bizarre to think that, and he was, a little embarrassed, but he said that these have been in general circulation. People could have taken the books and walked away with them. And, and uh, you know, he's not suggesting that people should steal books from libraries. But if they did, they, they could have had a, you know, original book used for Dracula research. As it is, they've taken them out of general circulation and uh, they've, they've purchased other books to replace them with, not the actual originals. What I have done is I've gone and gone on to Abe books and tried to purchase the same edition of, to me, the most interesting of those books. So I could read it myself and figure out what caught Bram's attention. And uh, I'm lucky enough to allowed to have photographs of some of the markings. So I can then zero in on the, the books that he wrote in and figure out, ah, that, that part really did, um, that's what got his attention. And that's where I, I was now convinced that Bram knew much more about uh, Vlad Dracula than his name, that he that he was a uh, you know, brutal warrior, that he impaled people. There was the story of um, the visiting envoy of the sultan, and they, these guys didn't take their turbans off. And so Vlad said, oh, if you don't take them off, I'll make sure they never come off and, and nail them into their heads. It's kind of kind of bizarre stuff like that. So, um, I, I, you know, what was something scholars said? The only thing he ever knew was the name. Now we know a little differently because of Philip Spedding's um, discovery at the London Library. We just go a little deeper. Um, so that 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 I think is is pretty cool. I'll tell you another thing that is hot off the press, um, Paul. That. I'm going to have to pursue, and I can't give all the information because I don't want somebody to beat me to it. But recently I found um, information about Bram Stoker's correspondence to a number of people. And that's something that he claims to, to have written hundreds of letters every day. And some of them were of matters concerning his writing of Dracula. and. I'm now on the trail to get access to read these letters because it would give me more information about what was interesting to you, Paul, and myself included, the origin of Dracula. Now, maybe it's the origin of other things in the novel that he was checking with. So maybe, you know, in about six or eight months when I can start traveling again, I can go to this country and, and, and look at their libraries and 
and, and have access to these things to, to develop a hypothesis on, you know, what was the content of these letters and what did Bram actually glean from this stuff? How did it help him form an opinion? Because, you know, the one thing for sure we know is Bram didn't just write this book willy-nilly. He, did, he took about six years of research. It's quite possible that he wrote an early version of it that ended up in Sweden and then Iceland, which was a, a very different version of the one that got published in London in 1897. So there was different refinements to it. You know, he, he put a ton of research into it um, and a lot of his own thought. So in that amount of time, there's, there's some you know, really interesting things that are emerging uh, about his writing process, his research, and where he got some of his information. Well, like you mentioned, I mean, his, you know, he was able to get the medical information bought on from family. So he, I mean, he wanted to make sure that this was as accurate, like, well, not as accurate as it could be, but, you know, as accurate a work of fantasy as it just to make it feel, give you that reasonable doubt. Yeah, there, there's a term called creating a willful suspension of disbelief. I love that term, willful suspension of dis disbelief. And it's done just the way you described. Maybe not overly um, accurate, but accurate enough to give the reader the feeling that there's something true happening here, and therefore the whole thing may be true. Now, you, you, you raised the issue of Bram's brother, and, and I'd like to talk about him just for a second, Sir William Thornley Stoker. He was knighted for his um, being the head of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, and he was very successful at that. So he was a, a surgeon who did very new and, and uh, groundbreaking um, surgeries in Ireland. He also was a, a doctor that, and there was not, not a lot of clear lines of demarcation back in the late, you know, mid to late 1800s of, is this a physician or a psychologist or a psychiatrist? He actually worked, Thornley did, in hospitals for the for, for mental patients. And I am convinced that he was the guy that gave Bram a lot of information about how to characterize Renfield. Very recently, a friend of mine who is a curator at a, at a, at a library in, in uh, Dublin pointed out to me that Bram Stoker also went to prisons and interviewed mental patients. And that's quite possibly how he was able to, again, use this background information to ca characterize Renfield so meticulously to, to get more than you need. And then you write this guy and he used his brother and he used his own personal experiences with his interviews. His brother, by the way, we, we have record of this. And JD and I could verify it when we looked at once again, the Dracula typescript. And we can see when you compared the Dracula notes in the Rosenbach Museum to Paul Allen's Dracula typescript and the novel, that Thornley actually wrote in 
you know, descriptions of how to do blood transfusion, what medical instruments to use for the operation on Renfield in Chapter 21. Uh, he actually drew a diagram that's sitting in these Dracula notes in the Rosenbach of where to do the brain trepidation surgery. And he went to great extent. I then dug even deeper into medical journals to find that Thornley really did perform these brain trepidation experiments on certain people. But at the same time, there was also the, the whole concept of what was, you know, what people did to, medic, to, to medically, what they did to mental patients. Uh, and in some cases, they actually tried certain types of experiments, uh, experimental surgery to, to make them better, which usually didn't work very well. Um, the other kind of sad, sad note, but it's something J.D. Barker and I use when you, again, do the same, we did the same thing Bram did. When you take this information about their lives, what they really did, Thornley Stoker's wife, Emily, really did go insane at a, at a point in her life and was committed to a hospital and, and, and lived there for, you know, in, until she passed away. So sadly, that was a part of Thornley's life. Well, JD and I looked at that and said, well, as sad as this was, uh, it's gold for two guys writing a prequel to Dracula. And, and now we're going to be able to involve both Thornley and Emily in the story in a, in a very realistic manner. Yeah. While we're talking medicine and origins and stuff, how much of Brahms' uh, health issues when he was younger and that and the treatments he was given led into uh, the uh, creation and stuff of Dracula and how and like his belief into the supernatural because if I'm not mistaken that's that would have been right around the time of like when like bloodletting and leeches and all that was right at its height. Yeah, uh, I'm gl glad you asked that and pointed that out. And you're absolutely right. Um, I. Again, I have theories because there was nothing written about what debilitating illness Bram had for the first seven years of his life. Nothing written. He he said something um, himself in a book called Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving. It's sort of a tell-all of him and Irving, which was the only bestseller Bram had uh, while he was still alive uh, because Irving was such a, a well-known theatrical figure when he, when he died. Um, Bram writes this book and he said in the book, you know, I didn't know what it was like to stand upright for the first seven years of my life. I was a very ill boy, but then I recovered and grew to be the tallest and largest in my family. And he went on to Trinity College and he became a champion athlete in a, in a wide variety of sports. So that caught my attention. Um, and it was, it was good fodder for early Bram in our, in our novel Dracul. But further to your question, which is in reality, and mind you, we base Bram's life, the reality of it, at the beginning of the novel, Dracul. So here's a young kid who is very ill. He's got an uncle who is famous doctor for dealing with fever by using bloodletting. And it's something that you know, as I dug deep into this, it was quite common to do in Ireland at the time, is leaching or cutting to get out the bad blood. And any kind of illness, fever, 
that you would have, the usual response was, well, let's let's do a bit of bloodletting. Um, and so therefore, it, it made sense to me that this was probably a traumatic experience for Bram if he was cut or leached. Because when I read the treaties that his uncle wrote, they were it was not very scientific about how many leeches to put on or how much blood to take out. It was simply put on the leeches, take out enough blood until the patient passes out. Then we've known we've got enough out. And then they close up the holes and, and feed the patient oil, some sort of olive oil, and claret. The oil, I, I'm not sure the medicinal, medicinal qualities of the oil, but the claret was to purify, and that was a red wine. So the alcohol was to, was to purify. So if you can imagine, Paul, a, a little kid somewhere between the age of zero and seven who would repeatedly have these fevers vampires and attached that, to him. Exactly. And along comes the uncle, uh, along with maybe a, a, a woman in white, you know, a, a nurse or something who attaches the, the blood, sucking leeches and, and cuts, and then he passes out, and then they give him the claret, and he's in this stupor for a while. And, and I really think that Bram, because of that, really developed this kind of horrifying sense of imagination of, of sort of, the you know, when he's in no man's land, which is this dream state. And back in those days, people believed that nightmares and dreams were a product of the devil or the, the cult was having its way with you because you have, you know, you have no control over the dreams. So I, I really think a lot of this early, let's just call it medical abuse, um, but it was done with good intentions, did contribute to him later on. As he was writing his novel and doing his research in the London Library and understanding that because of plagues in Europe, people were believing in vampires, and he had his own sort of mental scars about the whole concept. And it all sort of comes came together uh, in addition to stories that his mother would tell him about Irish fairies and banshees, and his nanny tells the same stories, and one of them in particular was the story of the Irish cholera epidemic that his mother survived. And in, in a few of those cases, there was um, the stories involved premature misdiagnosis of the disease and premature burial and people dragging themselves out of the mass, the mass grave, out of the pile of the undead. So it, it all sort of comes together as like a bit of a perfect storm, Paul. And that, that's, that's really how I uh, usually uh, explain you know, Bram's early research and writing, it doesn't, it wasn't done consciously, but it happened to him and it and affected him unconsciously. Well, they say some of the best ideas come to you when you're drunk. And, and you know, there was other quite famous horror writers that would be taking laudanum and all kinds of other things to write some of their uh, famous stories. So there we go. Yeah. And I mean, you, you, you figure at that early of an age, if you're Depending on how many treatments a day or a week you're getting, you're not designed for wine. <laughs> not that age. You know, you just think when you and I... So, I mean, you're already, you know, a little loopy from blood loss, and then <laughs> you add alcohol to the system. Man. He, he yeah, had to we give blood. high. <laughs> 
they, they give us orange juice or, or yeah. apple juice, something with sugars into it. And, and to, to get to help the dehydration, they give those guys red wine. It's like, no wonder you're going to be out of it for a while and thinking up some pretty wacky stuff. Like, yeah, he, that boy was drunk. <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> it, it's been a very interesting dive into the origins of Dracula and a, a very fun look at the life of Bram. And God, we could probably turn this into a four-hour interview <laughs> we could we we could go on because yeah i mean there's just so much between information you've uncovered and the different aspects of brahm's life and hell the other novels that he wrote i mean it's not like he was a one-hit wonder dracula's not yeah. not his only novel that, no that's right there was uh 12, 12 other novels and uh you know, some one other one, Layer of the White Worm, was actually turned into a, a movie. But I'll tell you, if if, if you want to read something, you know, I- interesting. Um, first of all, Dracula's Guest, as I said earlier in the show. But um, another guy, um, Mike Shepard, who's a friend of mine in Cruden Bay, Scotland, uncovered hard fact facts that Bram spent thirteen summers in Cruden Bay, Scotland where he did most of his writing of his other stories, Dracula being one of them, because this was his holiday time. Um, but he wrote The Mystery of the Sea, which Mike Shepard believes, he thinks it's Bram's second best novel next to Dracula. And um, I, I think it's pretty darn good, too. It's, it's got a lot of intrigue, but it also it, it take, a lot of it takes place using real history and blended into some of the cool stuff that goes on in, in uh, northern Scotland. Uh, much like Bram used the Whitby for his uh, settings for the arrival of, of Dracula and things that happened in Whitby. He was very, uh, he used a lot of these real life events to once again go back to the willful suspension of disbelief. But that's, that was his style. But uh, no, thank you, Paul, for, for asking lots of good questions. And hopefully uh, your listeners will, will enjoy this. And, um, you know, what I will say is, is uh, you know if you if you want more, um, you can find me on um, DakerStoker.com and also BramStokerEstate.com. My wife and I run the the website to give people lots of information about Bram. Um, so there's lot and the other family members. When the world gets back to normal, I do lead tours to uh, Ireland to see where Bram lived and did his early work to Cruden Bay, Scotland, and to Whitby. And when there's enough people to make a trip viable to go to Transylvania, we go there and look at places associated with both Vlad the Impaler as well as places where the the, the novel actually took place in in Transylvania. And um, pick up a copy of of Dracul because uh, there's a a lot of things we talked about today, uh, J.D. and I used in in our story to to make it feel real so it's it, it really does feel a, a little bit like a biography of bram but then fictionalized to to make people realize that bram writes the story of dracula as a warning to the world that vampires are real and this was his only outlet um it's had great reviews it was the number one horror hardcover in all the UK when the book came out in 18. And we were one of the top five books of, um, of the Horror Writers Association when we came out in 2018, which is uh, 
We were pretty happy about that. So um, other than that, Paul, I, I appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah. And speaking of where to find things, you were nice enough to, uh, at, you know, at this point, listeners uh, have uh, put in all their entries. Uh, you, you were nice enough to offer up Bram Stoker bobblehead as a giveaway. Absolutely. So for anyone who isn't the lucky winner, where can they find that for purchase? <laughs> yeah, if you're not lucky enough to win one, um, the, these are these, it's a brand new item. Actually, it's one of it's the first licensed, it's the first Bram Stoker bobblehead anywhere. But you can find them at and it is gorgeous at at the Dracula store, uh, which is on the the um, com website. Um, so go there. We've got lots of other cool products, but uh, check it out. I, I think they're twenty nine seventy five. I think. And uh, I, I know you have one, Paul, because you thought they were pretty cool. And, and I think they, they look an awful lot like Bram, and it's got a cool pose with him holding Dracula. They're gorgeous. Quality's amazing. And the, they're not tiny either. I mean, these are th- – this is a good-sized bobblehead. <laughs> yeah, I, we, I didn't want to go with a little teeny, teeny little sort of four or five inches. I think these are like 11 inches tall, yeah. something like that. Um, yeah, they're, 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 they're pretty, and, and I think it, you know, it looks pretty cool on, on, uh, some of my writer friends who have enjoyed Dracula. I got to get one on my desk, you know, I gotta, I gotta be inspired by, by, uh, by Bram when I do my horror, which, which is cool, which is a nice homage. Well, I mean, as, as soon as you so showed me the picture, what, what did I say? I got to have one. So I yeah, mean, you did. <laughs> you did. So with that, let's, uh, go ahead and see, uh, who the lucky winner is. They've been submitting entries for the last couple months now so let's go ahead and see who the winner is and the winner is and yes and the winner is the lucky winner is colleen Kreider. congratulations colleen i'll be sending you your bram stoker bobblehead hey congratulations i'll put all the links to the uh where they can find you in the episode description, not necessarily you, but if all the links you mentioned in the uh, episode description yep. to the winner of the uh, bobblehead, I will message you and we will get your information and we'll get that shipped out to you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you know where to find his information. You can find me on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. or over at electronicmediacollective.com alongside other great podcasts and you know Dacre I gotta thank you this honestly couldn't have been a better interview for my one year anniversary episode I mean everything just lined up phenomenally (laughs) I'm so glad that that I can be that guy that helps the the one year anniversary I'm glad that your spider's web um, of Carlo uh, of the uh, Carlo family and Lugosi family and makes its way to the Stoker family because I think we're, we're all sort of symbiotic as far as uh, you know keeping fans of, of good classic horror alive. And the next generations I know are very interested in uh, the legacy of you know the, our, our relatives that made it all happen at the beginning. So I'm glad to be a part of it and uh, glad your listeners enjoy it. And listeners, thank you for uh, tuning in for a year. Here's to another good year and until then. Mash on.
niece has been Moose's monster match. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare. <laughs>